As we turn now to the Word of God and the preaching of the Scripture, would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus in chapter 13. We've made it now to chapter 13, which we will read here in just a moment. Uh, But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, um, the wisdom of your word calls out to us that we would not only keep your commands, but that we would treasure them that we would tie your words around our neck and bind them upon our hearts. We know that your word is good and true and helpful for us. Would you help us to see you here now? Open our eyes by your spirit and open our hearts to believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take up this morning these first uh, 16 verses in chapter 13. So we'll take the, the bulk of the chapter here. This is Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beasts, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leavened bread shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt 
from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the word of God. Now, this text puts us between the final plague of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. So the people are on their way out of Egypt. The Lord has brought, by this point, the tenth judgment, which is the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. But they have not yet crossed through the Red Sea and into their final freedom. So for some readers, this point in the narrative of Exodus just kind of lags. It's a little slow. Some of the text is a little dense to read. So for some people, this section is pretty forgettable. I mean, the birth of Moses section in Exodus, you know, he's, he's in the Nile River. He gets adopted by an Egyptian princess. This is all strangely kind of intriguing. And, and, and then we've got the plague section of Exodus, which is uh, kind of chilling and really intense. And, the, and then there's the Red Sea section, which is really powerful and kind of wondrous. And, but this section, if these uh, verses in Exodus were all a movie, and I know movies have already been made, but if the movies kind of went line by line, uh, verse by verse, if, if these were the movie we were watching, this might be the point where a number of people might quietly slip out of the movie theater. You know, a chance for a bathroom break, a, little, a, a moment where you can slip out and, and get a little popcorn and come right back in. It doesn't help, and at least doesn't add to our interest, that the content of these verses might seem by now redundant. We've heard some of these same sorts of things in previous chapters. So let me just say briefly just a couple of things about the value of this text before we actually look at the text itself. This text is redundant. <laughs> Most of this we have already heard before in Exodus, and that's actually a good thing, because we need to hear it again. For those of you that raised kids, are raising kids, continue to raise kids, I'm sure when you tell your kids to do something, it sinks in the first time you tell them right? They get it all. They do it all the very first time. We know that it takes a little bit. And we actually want to, even though I'm not always great at this myself, want to give our kids grace, space to learn this, not expect that they're going to get everything all at once. I would like to think that as I get older, I kind of grow out of that need to hear things multiple times, but, you know, it's almost worse. <laughs> I almost need to hear things over and over uh, more now. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
We should want and even need, we need to hear these important things over and over. That's why we hear a lot of the same things in Scripture. That's why we hear Paul drumbeat a lot of the same message again and again. That Christ died for your sin according to the Scripture. You hear that hundreds of times. That, that Christ was buried, dead, raised again on the third day, was witnessed, appeared to many witnesses, and that the grace of Jesus makes us what we are. The grace of Christ in us is not in vain, but is effective in it, in us. We hear that again and again. We need to run that on repeat. We want the gospel over and over. So it's good that it's redundant. I'll also say just briefly, the material here that we've just read is in some ways some of the most practical parts of Exodus at least for the earliest readers. We know this doesn't quite play out for us in the same way, but for them, you know, the, the sections about Moses and the plagues and the Red Sea, that's a part of their history, a treasured part of their history, but this, this meticulous section about the practices described here are not just part of their history, they're, they're present. It's what they're doing now. This is part of their future as they continue in the land. This is something that's very current for their lives. For them, this would not be a moment to go get the popcorn. This is the moment to lick, lick their pen and take notes about what they're to do, that they would actually cue in about how the Lord is building into them practice in their faith. The Lord is building the house of his people that will last for generations. And even though that doesn't quite look the same for us, the Lord is doing the same thing in us, that through, uh, through different practices, these sorts of things are still helpful. So we want to see what the Lord would give us here in his word. Now, that's the value of it. What do we actually see in this section of scripture? If you piece it apart, there are just generally two major cultural practices addressed here, two major paragraphs or chunks uh, of scripture. And we'll look, about, look at what those two practices share in common in just a moment. But first, we need to look at what each of these practices are. The two practices, if you look at them, are the feast of the unleavened bread and the redemption of the firstborn. Those are the two, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Redemption of the Firstborn. The feast we've already addressed at some length back when we bumped into it in chapter 12. So just I'll briefly remind us as a good reminder over and over again of what this is. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was this annual holy week where they were to eat nothing leavened. And the idea behind this was that it would show them, remind them with the haste the speed at which they were to leave Egypt, and that they were to make a clean break with the old, that the Lord was giving a, them a brand new life. That was the purpose behind it. The second one, the redemption of the firstborn, we still need to unpack this a little bit, uh, because we, there's just a lot with, within this one. The redemption of the firstborn is described in multiple ways here. In the opening section, in verse 2, it's described as a consecration. Boy, there's a 
heavy sounding word, consecrate to me all the firstborn. And in verse two, he says, the re whatever this is, the reason why they're to do it, he says at the end of that verse is because all the firstborn, man and beast, all of them are mine. We know everything, of course, belongs to the Lord. He's the Lord. But the firstborn in particular, he says, are mine. And so the response of the people are to consecrate them, or he would say later, you're to redeem them. This is how it's described in verse, where is it? Verse 15. Let me read it again. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that are first opening the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Now, what is that? What does it mean that an Israelite would redeem his firstborn? Literally in the scripture, to redeem means to buy back at a price. To redeem means to buy back at a price. Sometimes in the scripture, this is called to ransom something. Sort of like a ransom note, you know, in all the movies. I don't know if anyone does this in real life, but at least in movies, you take something, you write a ransom note, buy it back at a price. Now, with a crook, you know, with a thief, a ransom note is, the, the ransom price is to get back what was stolen. But with the Lord, the ransom is the price to get back what is rightfully his. So in other words, we could say what's going on here works something like this. The Lord says this, everything is mine, especially all the firstborn of man and beast. It's mine. But because I am generous, and because your firstborn sons and the firstborn of your livestock are precious to you also, I will allow you to redeem them, to buy them back, so that you can have your firstborn again. And when the Lord allows the people to buy back their firstborn, he doesn't give them a high price. This isn't about money. What's the Lord going to do with money anyway? But there is still a price. And that price upon the head is to remind us that we are not our own. This practice then of redeeming the firstborn, which is established here. Jews continue to redeem their firstborn sons. It carries even into the early days of the New Testament. Um, even Jesus was redeemed in this sense. So Jesus is the firstborn, 
His mom was a virgin, after all, before, uh, before his conception. And so when Christ was born, he is the firstborn of Mary and of Joseph. And so you might remember the scene uh, with Simeon. We sometimes talk about this around Christmas, that Simeon in the temple says, Ah, my eyes have seen your salvation when he meets the Christ child. So Jesus is about a month old. His parents are bringing him to the temple to redeem him to pay the redemption price for their firstborn. And because they're poor, the price of redemption for them was two birds. So they gave two birds for the redemption of their son, Jesus. Redemption was part of the fabric of Jewish society. It affected them all in some ways. And I wonder how exactly this would have affected the heart and the lives of the people. I imagine it would have affected how we might parent. I mean, to feel and to know the sense that our children are in some ways on loan to us from God. And the fact that they ultimately even belong to the Lord both gives me at least a sense of immense freedom, but also immense responsibility that I really want to care for them well, especially because they belong to God. This also would affect, I imagine, how we view leadership in the church. Paul reminds the elders of the church specifically that they're to care for the people because these people are bought with Christ's own blood. And I would imagine this concept of redemption would also affect how we view ourselves. That if you're a Christian, if you're a person who puts faith in Jesus, you are redeemed. Not that you've been purchased in a physical sense. No one paid shekels or birds for your life. But you are purchased in a spiritual sense by Jesus Christ himself. We heard it earlier after our confession of sin, the line from Galatians, that uh, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us on the cross. The price he paid was becoming a curse. And he did that to buy you back. Let that sink in. Remind yourself of that again and again. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price by Jesus. You have been bought with a price by Jesus. Hmm. Now, we have these two practices here outlined in Exodus, the unleavened feast and the redemption of the firstborn that they were to carry into their future years and generations for generation to generation in the new land as they settled in. What these two practices both share in common is that in this text, they are both called a sign 
or a mark. Both these practices are called a sign or a mark. And what's even more interesting is that the sign or mark is described in a particular place. That the mark, they're a mark on your hand or on your forehead. You could see it in verse, uh, where is it? Verse 9. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. He says it again in verse 16. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. It's an interesting position for this sign to be. We hear the same sort of thing discussed later in Deuteronomy. You'll hear the position again of the sign. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6. Let me pick up in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. And you shall... Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So you can see the Lord's intention here with these sorts of things. They were to mark their hands and their eyes because these things were to affect everything that they would do with their hands. It would affect the things that they think about, the space between their eyes. In a way, this is saying, these things are to be ingrained in you. They're to become that much a part of you. These things are symbols of who you are. That's what it means to have it upon our heart. Now, as a symbol, this is important for us, so key in here, as a symbol, these marks are not meant to be physical marks on the hand or between the eyes. Some marks are physical, but these are not. So in Exodus, the, the whole of the unleavened feast is to be the mark. The whole of the redemption of the firstborn is to be the mark. So these are clearly symbols. It doesn't even make sense that you could put the whole unleavened feast between your eyes or on your hand. Also in Deuteronomy, the whole of the command of God was to be a symbolic mark. So it would be sim silly to try to, you know, mark that on your hand or tape it onto your forehead. You know, like put a little sticky note of the whole Bible smashed on your, on your head. That would miss the purpose of the mark anyway, but that doesn't stop people from interpreting these things as physical marks. You may have heard about this practice. Some people, even now today, take these little boxes called uh, phylacteries. Boy, that's a word. Little boxes called phylacteries. They look like little, um, you know, little heideckes that you leave in your car or around, they're about that size. And, and what people would do is take, take these phylacteries and roll up scriptures, really, 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 really small, tiny little versions of this, and you know, tuck it in, and then physically bind it onto their hand or onto their forehead, based on these texts. Now there's no evidence that Jesus or the disciples ever did that sort of thing, that they ever encouraged the sort of physical practice of putting them on the forehead or on the hand. In fact, the only time that the phylacteries are mentioned in the New Testament is when Jesus is criticizing some of the scribes and Pharisees for doing it. He says, your phylacteries are big so that other people can see how holy you are. And when we make these things physical marks, that misses the point 
could tie the word of God onto your forehead or your hand and totally miss having the word of God on your heart. What a tragedy that would be. Now, this is why this is important. One of the reasons why I bring all of this up about the physical or symbolic nature of these marks is because versions of this are still a plague for us today. Can I take a little rabbit trail for a moment? Especially if the rabbit trail is about the mark of the beast. You say mark of the beast, and usually people are like, ooh, mark of the beast. Let's talk about the mark of the beast. I need to take this rabbit trail to talk about the mark of the beast because um, in the book of Revelation, John, the author of, of the book, is relating to his hearers everything that he is seeing and hearing, and he's also drawing off of lots of Old Testament imagery. So when he first brings up what's called the mark of the beast, you might notice the similarity of its location to the mark that's described in Exodus and Deuteronomy. So let me read about it here in Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. Revelation 13, verse 16. Also it, the it there is this creature called the beast. Also it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the man who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. Well, that's confusing. You know, this, the, there's tons of speculation about all these sorts of things, and we won't be able to unpack all of this now. But I will mention that when we read this section on its own, out of context, it gives birth to all sorts of conspiracy theories about the mark of the beast. And these conspiracy theories pop up every few years and circle the internet and infect us all. So you've probably heard things like this, that the mark of the beast is a microchip that goes under your hand or on your forehead and it's going to be the new version of credit cards. Or the mark of the beast is this implant that they're going to make you put into children when they're born to sort of like ID them like you do with pets. Or here's the most recent version of this. The mark of the beast is like a shot or a tracker that goes in your hand or your head, and it comes from Bill Gates or somebody spooky like him that, that somehow cooked up in relation to COVID. Mm, heard these things? I heard this yesterday, even. It is everywhere. Usually when it's posted up, it's usually in a little image with really scary font. Watch out for the mark of the beast. It's coming. This sort of approach or understanding of, of the mark has the effect then of producing panic and anxiety around the things that we presume to be the mark. 
It makes Christians sometimes feel afraid, paranoid, at least hesitant, because we're afraid that we're going to take the mark of the beast without intending to. Oh no, I accidentally took the mark of the beast. Let me encourage you here. Do not be fooled by all the mania and all the misinformation about the mark of the beast that someone posted on their Facebook page. First of all, there is little to no evidence that most of the things that people have described as the mark were actually planned or even produced. A lot of these things are just rumors. So as rumors, please don't pass those along. That's lying. It's damaging to your fellow believers and to other people. Be careful before you share those things. But even if these things did exist, even if there were all these microchips and all these you know, small technological shots and all these things, this has nothing to do with the mark of the beast. Even if there were some sort of microchip, I'm not telling you whether or not you should take it. That's not the point here. The thought of that kind of personally just creeps me out just because it makes my skin crawl because I'm not good at anything related to skin. Uh, but, but let's at least cut the idea out of this that this is some sort of devilish plot. This is a misunderstanding of the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast in the book of Revelation is clearly, clearly symbolic not a physical mark. And the reason we know this is because of the next verse out of the text I just read a moment ago. In chapter 14, verse 1, we see redeemed Christians who are described in this verse as the 144,000. But these redeemed Christians, all of them also have a mark on their forehead. All of them. It's not a physical mark. Uh, it's a symbolic mark. What is it? Let's see. The mark is described as the name of the Father and of the Lord Jesus. And, and I know of no scholar who thinks that the mark that Christians have is a physical one. That Christians are walking around with the name of Yahweh and of Christ tattooed on our foreheads. The marks here in both cases, the mark of Christ and the mark of the Antichrist or the beast, are not physical. They are symbolic, clear expressions of one's allegiance. They're tied to one's worship. It's creating a clear divide between those who are loyal to the beast and those who are loyal to the Lord Jesus, whatever the cost. I know this is a long rabbit trail, but let me lay some of these rumors to rest. You are not going to take the mark of the beast by accident. You won't accidentally take the mark of the beast. If you go into the doctor to get a shot or to get some sort of COVID vaccine, perhaps, that does not mean that you've accidentally sided with Satan. So you can ignore most of the hysteria that comes up around the mark of the beast that pops up on the internet or on the TV or on the radio. 
most of what you hear is more scare-based than scripture-based. Scripture's discussion of the mark, both here in Revelation and in Exodus, is describing the Christian's life, not their body. That our lives are marked by the Lord. There we go. That was a very long rabbit trail, but one I hope is worth taking just to sort of lay some of that panic to rest. The very last things I'll say here is that as the Lord is bringing his people out of Egypt, he is giving them these signs that are symbolically marked on their hands and what they do and between their eyes and what they think for a particular purpose. He gives them these marks to, to have a particular effect upon them, and we want that effect for us too. So I'll mention this, just these two particular effects, and then we'll close. They're both in verse 9. Here's one effect of these signs. It shall be to you as a sign on your head or on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that, here's the purpose, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. It's one of the main intents of the sign. That the law of the Lord would be in your mouth. Obviously, this is again not physically tearing off pieces and eating them. We get what the meaning here. It's to bring us to talk about these particular things. Specifically to talk about the law or the commands of God. We know that the law has limits. It's not a way that we can save ourselves. The people of Israel have already been saved by God. The law is not going to bring them out of Egypt. The Lord must do that. But the law is the, law is the Lord's now gift to them. It's the call upon their lives. If we are really rescued out of Egypt by God, if we're really redeemed and purchased of God, then how now does he call us to live? The only way we can know that is if he teaches us to talk about those things, to discuss those things, to mull over these things, what the Lord has said is good and not good in his law. But one more thing. This mark is to lead us more than just to the law. It's to lead us to God, specifically to a particular attribute of God. If we keep reading in verse 9, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth for Here's the main thrust. With a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. It's to make us see the strong hand of the Lord. And this phrase will be repeated throughout the Old Testament. The strong hand of the Lord. This is not a go-get-popcorn moment. The Lord is now marking his people with his own strength. He's putting that mark upon them now because he knows that they will need that mark in the days ahead. The days ahead for them will soon mean no food in the desert. The days ahead will soon mean that they're going to doubt their direction and be tempted to go back to Egypt. The days ahead will soon mean that they face wars with people that are far stronger than they are. 
And the days ahead means that they will be tempted to do what is right in their own eyes. They need the mark of the Lord pressed upon them gently, lovingly, strongly to remind them of the strong hand of the Lord. And you need that too. I need that too. Because we have days ahead. I need to know the strong hand of the Lord. And he puts them upon our weak hands so that when we look at our own weak hands, it would draw us to see the Lord's strong hand so that what we cannot do, the Lord is able to do. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these signs and marks, for these reminders that you've put upon us of who you are, that you are a mighty God. Lord, we're reminded also of who we are, that we are yours, that we are purchased by you and that we belong to you. Help us to live in the light of that, to love your law and to love you as our God. And we bring you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.